Welcome to the K2 Sales Podcast. I'm your host, Karen Kelly. Every week, I'll be sitting down with a sales executive where they'll share their stories and experiences that produce game-changing results. Let's be honest, sales can be a tough game. I'm sure at some point, you've all delivered a less than stellar demo been ghosted by a client or two, and sometimes maybe we did more talking than listening. And that's where I can help. The stories and insights our guests share can be applied to your own business, your territory, or with your team, so you're not reinventing the wheel. Our weekly tactics and strategies help you get out of your head and start creating your own path towards game-changing results. Welcome back to the K2 Sales Podcast. I'm your host, Karen Kelly. Now, Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome to 2023. Delighted to be starting a new year off with you all. Now, the focus of today's podcast is really about being buyer-centric. And we all talk about this a lot, but my guest, Tom Burton, who is the co-founder of Lead Smart Technologies, and he's also the author of The Revenue Zone, which I had a chance to read, which is a great book, easy to implement with your team. And what it is, it's really a traditional shift in um, our awareness and our mindset from the sales funnel we used to adopt from to more really buyer-centric. And how can we start selling the way we what, what we want to buy? And a lot of that is empowering and enabling the buyer. So think about the traditional ways of these legacy systems where we are forcing and making it very rigid experience for our buyer. We're basically inserting them into our process and they feel it. And unfortunately, this results in them not getting back to you. You know, uh, obviously the ghosting goes on, um, less time in between interactions. And it's because they feel that you are on your own agenda. You're not meeting them where they're at and they know that. And so it makes their decision very easy. To support that, Forrester's uh, stat is that in 2025, over 50% of of decision makers are going to be millennials. So when you add that, new demographic on board, millennials are completely intolerant for any of, of that. They, The minute that they are not left to their own devices, free to make their own decisions, if there's additional friction on where the traditional buyer might give someone the benefit of the doubt, the millennials will not. So we have to be adding value. We have to be meeting them where they're at and we have to guide them along. So it's a co-created journey, but they need to feel that they still have the freedom to walk, walk where they want to walk. Again, we can't let them completely go in a landmine, but we need to be a guide versus this real harsh uh, dictator that's going to push them along. Nobody wants that. And so he draws a parallel now to how can we create the revenue zone. And really, when you look at a graphic, he's got two axes and you're trying to get them the two furthest points of where they trust you and there's demand. And when you can achieve those two areas, that's when you're moving your customer into the revenue zone. One of the main areas we have to travel through on the way to the revenue zone is the anonymous, the anonymous zone. And how many of us as buyers want to stay in that anonymous zone? So we don't want to access gated information. We want to download information that's going to allow us to stay in this anonymous zone for a little while. Let us do our due diligence, our homework. And naturally, we're going to want to move to that next stage some of us, we, some of us, depending on the complexity, might just move to the revenue zone phase, but an engagement phase where we can validate, you know, what we've just learned ourselves. We can answer some questions. So they are reaching out, recognizing that I do need some assistance here. And then based on that, you know, then they can move to the revenue zone. But the important information here is how can we meet them where they're at? Give them the information that they need at the stage that they're at. And this lays it out beautifully because it's the awareness has to go up. And it's almost like because it's graphic, if I didn't move here, you know, this is what I've missed. So it's easy to be more prescriptive and really pinpoint as to what you're doing or what you're not doing. As sales leaders, this is something that you can implement with your team as well as individual contributors. This is our role. Our role is to create an experience. So how can we help build trust? How can we get the no like, and trust? And how can we move them from awareness to interest to demand and ultimately to the revenue zone? Okay, so we're not, we're turning off the happy ears. We're actually going through stages, but together. So we are guiding them. We're not pushing them. We're not forcing them. We're guiding them. Take a listen. Let us know what you think. Let us know if you've implemented any of these and what some of the results were. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Now, most companies claim that they are buyer-centric, but how many of them really are meeting their customers at the right time to guide them along the journey? 
And uh, my guest today, Tom Burton, is here to discuss The Revenue Zone, his most recent book, and to have the discussion around what we're seeing in terms of millennials uh, moving into the buyer seat. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thank you, Karen. Excited for the conversation. Yes, me too. So thank you for being here. So I want to I wanna start by, first of all, I had the chance of reading Tom's book, The Revenue Zone, so it will be linked in the show notes. Highly encourage you to read it. And it's, uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about it in a, a tactical way, you know, a little bit later. But what I want to start with is most companies say that they are buyer-centric. But in your research and in what you're seeing, what are, what are you seeing? Are, they, is, are those words and, you know, their emotions are still seller-centric? Or what are we seeing if we start there? Well, I, I think it's kind of a half and half in a way. I think that companies have, you know, worked to become more buyer-centric maybe as it relates to understanding the marketing aspect of it and, you know, understanding what products they're building and, and who their ideal customer is and that kind of thing. Where I think, though, that it breaks down is, is that when it comes to the actual sales process and the process of taking a prospect and converting them into a customer, they immediately become seller-centric because they want to be in control of that process. Right. I mean, that's the way that's what we've always done sales that way is, you know, you'll, you'll oftentimes hear, well, if you're not in my process, then you're in their process. And that's an awful thing. Um, so I, I don't think in fact, I see very few companies that are buyer centric in the sense of enabling the buyer to control their sales process or their sales journey. But I do see, you know, companies working a lot to try and understand their customer and and maybe be able to market better to them. But then that shifts over when it gets into that mm -hmm. sales process. Yeah. So the back end portion, they are doing their research, getting the voice of the customer, and then it flips and it, it moves to me, me, me. And so if we could just keep it, you know, in that initial lane, we would see better traction. And I like what you said there, Tom, you said, enable the buyer. Talk to us about what you mean by enabling the buyer to guide them through the journey. Yeah. And just to add one more thing to what you were just saying a, a second ago, right? Even about customer research is a lot of times we research about, well, you know, what's your problem, right? What customer or what problem are we trying to solve? And, and that's great. Nothing wrong with that. What we don't do is we don't understand the experience that the customer and the prospect really would like in that buying journey, right? So then we use, we say, well, we're going to have them follow our process. And now that answers your, now this comes to your second question is when we talk about enabling the buyer, what I'm, what we're talking about is what experience does a buyer want to go through? And think about this for yourself, right? As a consumer or even as a business buyer, what experience do you want to go through when you're buying something? And, and then how do you, as a company, enable and help you as a buyer have a better experience, successfully get through that experience, and ideally for everybody is, you know, get to the point where you're, you're ready and, and willing to make a purchase. Um, mm -hmm. so that's what, that's really what we mean by enabling the buyer at a high level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Basically what I hear from that is, you know, sell, sell the way you like to buy yourself. Well, and it's funny, I talked to a lot of companies and I said, you know, we talk about their sales process and I asked them, I said, well, would you want to be sold that way? And, you know, and, and have that experience. And they're like, no, no, no. Okay. So why would you do that for your, <laughs> for your, right? yeah. Right. Do not as for I me, say, but it's okay do, for you. Know. <laughs> <laughs> but that that happens to me so often, and I think I'm a very bad customer because I have zero tolerance. And we're going to get into this later as well in in terms of tolerance. But you know, it's because you know, and and again, you think about demand. I know what I want, so I am highly aware. And when someone is preventing me or slowing me down or adding friction, it just makes me, it, 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 I understand why I, this, that last stat is 92% of buyers want to buy without a rep because you're slowing me down. So maybe we can also talk about, you know, the buyers do want to be self-serve, but in saying that there is still a role of the sales rep when, you know, those who are doing it well and those who are adding value and allowing them to guide them. But when you think also about just one more thing here is when you went back about the sale, controlling sales process and you look at the role of a, you know, a sales manager or leader, 
Like that, that's all I was taught growing up through sales is like, here's a process control, like get them through it, like herd them like cattle. So in some instances, it's not really the fault of the rep because they're doing what's been told of them. And it's like, hang on a minute. So it needs to start, in my opinion, a layer up and educating them on, hey, like, just like you said, do you like to be hurdled and cattled through this way with these really rigid guidelines? Sure. And, and that whole process that you just described right, is a legacy process from, you know, who knows how long, from the 70s probably. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if you look at the, the history of it, we didn't have any access to information so as buyers. So anything that we did would require us to talk to a salesperson in order to get information and to facilitate because they're the only ones who had all the information that's out there. So mm -hmm. you had to work with the salesperson to facilitate it. And then we, as over time, we built sales processes, sales methodologies, all of that around that process that assumed that the buyer needed me as a salesperson in order to complete their journey. And we've just never, we've never gotten rid of that in this, in this recent internet, you know, web age. And now more than ever, as we know, right, we have access to pretty much anything, anybody, um, any situation. So we don't need a salesperson to facilitate our our process of getting information. What we need a salesperson or somebody for, whether we know it or not, and especially in B2B, is to help guide us so that we don't end up in rabbit holes and we don't end up lost. And you know, a lot of deals end up in a no decision because the customer just or the prospect gets confused. Mm -hmm. And they end up in rabbit holes and they're just they become overwhelmed. And that's not a good thing for the prospect or 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 the company either. So it's um but we have to realize the world we're living in today is not the world that the sales world of the seventies or the eighties or mm -hmm. whatever, when we had no access to information. I think you bang on. And that, that is when I talked to a lot of companies that are just kind of living in those dinosaur ages. And it's like, that was the way it was done because we had no other choice. Like, like you said, like when I first started, people had to come to me with my brochure and my product because it wasn't online. So, you know, I was the voice. I had to do that. But it's, it's now, there's so much more room here. You can do, I mean, usually they're 80% of the way down the, you know, research-wise before they even engage with you. And that's also a problem too, because then, like you said, they're confused, they're overwhelmed. And my former guest, Matt Dixon, 60% of deals end in no decision, just like you said, because they can't make a decision, they're overwhelmed. So we do play a role and we do need to guide them, enable them with the right information at the right time. So talk to us about the, the various stages, I guess, or the role, the role of the rep to guide them so that they, that they feel confident in making that decision. Yeah, so, so when we now get to the point of guiding, this is really a responsibility, not just of the salesperson, but of the whole, I guess what you wanna call it, the whole revenue team, right? And, and even the role of, of marketing and, and even to a degree, client or customer success. But, it's a, the responsibility now is, is how do I enable, right? Somebody who has some initial awareness or even initial interest in the product, not even my product for a second, it can be the category that I'm in. So if I'm in the mm -hmm. business of selling accounting software, right? We want to enable somebody who's interested in accounting software to do their research and ideally go through that research in a way that creates demand for my product and builds trust with my business and ideally doesn't go create demand for some other product or gets them so confused <laughs> that they say, you know, forget it. And then they don't go any farther. So mm -hmm. I know we're going to kind of go deeper on this, but that's at a high level. What we, what we want to be able to do is enable that person and help them get to the point where they're able to understand and you're creating demand for your product and, and trust for your business. A few things you said there, Tom, was one, I think when there's such a difference between interest and demand, but I think reps confuse interest immediately is demand and it's demand for their product. And like you said, it might be in that category. So this is really where the discovery comes in. And I think at that curiosity level from the, the buyer, it's like, if you start pitching right then, you've missed an opportunity to really understand what it is they're looking for. And so you might just cut them off at one or two things and they didn't get to the full scope. And, and when it comes to time, you know, for you to align your solution, you've missed it because you pitched and you made it about yourself going back to like seller focus too early. And so 
you know, there's a real risk in, in mixing those two up, the interest and demand. Yeah. And even the awareness part is, you, you know, you have to create demand, right? And that's that your job is to create demand. So, and help the buyer get to the point of demand. And demand's not always an easy, you know, demand is there's a strong emotional tie almost to a demand. Like when you really want something, right? There is an urge. There's a, there's an emotional aspect of it. Um, when you're interested in something that doesn't, you may be interested in it and there may be curiosity and intrigue, but it's missing that urge. It's missing that I've got to do this mm -hmm. because to get something over, you know, to get actually a purchase done, especially in a B2B world and a, and a larger purchase in particular, right? There has to be a real driving mechanism for that to occur. And that's where that demand comes in. So the things that I would need to do as a salesperson with somebody who is really moving towards that demand area is different than if they're in the interest area. If they're just interested, I need to keep moving them towards that demand point and then the sale becomes easy. But if I'm trying mm -hmm. to shoehorn in a sale at the interest level, all I'm going to do is piss you off or as a buyer, right? Mm -hmm. And now you're going to ghost me and not, you know, accept my phone calls or my emails or, or all of that. But if I'm actually adding value and helping then you'll continue to engage and, and build conversation. And I, again, it's very different from company to company. So I know we're talking very generally, but these are, again, some of the problems and the, and the things that we see that create that friction. Mm -hmm. And it seems so obvious when you just say it there, you know, because all, people are looking at the effects of that and the effects are just like you said, they're ghosting, they're not returning, you know, phone calls. There's a lot of, there's distance in between communication. And if you just were to like pause for a moment and take a few steps back and go, hang on a minute. If I look at their behavior, at their, their motives, were they, were they truly in demand or were they in interest? Oh, I over, I was over zealous there, you know, and I overshot the runway. But even when you, when you look at demand and you said emotion there, like you have that, you have to align the energy there and that you got to strike while it's hot because I know I've wanted to buy, you know, I find the software and I'm like, oh my God, it does exactly what I want. And I sign up and I get a demo. And then like five days later, I get some BDR who's passed me off to somebody else. And they're like, we're calling from this company. I'm like, what? It was five days ago. I've so like, I'm gone. I've already moved on. You know, I'm dating somebody new now. And I'm just like, you can't do that. Yeah, no, I, there's two parts to it, right? You have to you have to know, or to the best of your ability, know where the customer's at and then provide things at the right time as they as mm -hmm. they move through that. So you don't want to go in too soon. And at the same time, you don't want to, you know, if you have somebody who you or, or even some other way have created demand with them, then move on it, right? How do you capitalize on mm -hmm. that and move things along? And your playbooks are going to be different based upon where they where they sit there. And I think it's so important to have playbooks because the more often you do that, you can recognize and you can e more easily move people and know what, what video, what white paper, what story, and it becomes very prescriptive. You're like, I can, I I've seen this before. I know what, I know what's going to move them. Whereas when you shoot, when you do this or when it's this persona, it doesn't work for them. And, and this is what I teach, but so often people are just looking for the quick way out. And it's like, you really have to know your buyer and the stages and the emotions and the behaviors and the reluctances so that you can get in front of it, not in a selling way so that you're creating a real cohesive risk-free and friction-free experience for them. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. I'm a co-founder in a software company and and we have people all the time asking for demos, right? Some people do a demo and you can tell at the end of the demo that they're in the, getting close to that revenue zone and demand and they want a proposal and they want to talk about pricing and all of that. And, and that's great. But then there's other people that get through a demo where you can tell that, okay, I've now got some maybe interest or at least some knowledge, right? I was doing some research. Mm -hmm. I understand what's possible, but what they really need then is maybe other things that are going to help them navigate their organization and get other buy-in and get other people involved and explain the return on investment. So if you can do that, then I'm not going to be like, Hey, can I get you a proposal? I'm going to be, Hey, you know what? I've got this great, you know, calculator that you can use to calculate ROI. Would this be valuable for you? Let me send that to mm -hmm. you. And then let's talk about how that worked for you, you know, in a week or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. Very mm -hmm. different, very different playbook, depending upon where they are. And that, you know, as you in the, as, 
you know, the revenue zone matrix, as I talk about in the book, it's a, it's a different playbook based upon where they're at. And I may get introduced to them at different points in that process when they reach mm-hmm. out for a demo. Some of them may be farther along in their journey. Some of them are shorter in their journey. Yeah. And, and there's no better way of really emphasizing that meet them where they're at, because that's exactly what you said. And I think we have to recognize based on the language, based on the questions they're asking, where that is. And the worst thing is if you have someone in that revenue zone and you bring them back and say, well, why don't you talk to me about this initial phase? And you're like, Jesus, we already were at four. Why are you bringing me back to one? So I think it really is important to meet them where they're at. Well, God, we can go in so many different directions here. But again, the <laughs> this is why a lot of the, you know, sort of current sales process, especially you see in technology where you have the BDR and the SDR, and then that hands off to the AE and then all of these different handoffs. And that again, may have made sense 10 years ago or 15 years ago. It doesn't work now. So, Mm -hmm. because you can't keep up, you can't have all of those people expect them to understand the customer where they're at, all of that. So really Mm -hmm. having somebody who is responsible for facilitating that customer journey. I don't even, you can call them a salesperson, but they're really a guide. And I talk about this in Mm -hmm. the book, right? It's who is your guide and you assign a guide to your customer. And that guide is responsible for that guide team, even in some cases is responsible for guiding that customer or that prospect into the, to the revenue zone. It's just a different mindset. Mm -hmm. It's not trying to sell them. I'm trying to guide them. And if I guide them well, I will get sales. Mm-hmm. And we are going to get into the revenue zone in a moment. And just what you said there about guiding them, it forces you to relinquish control, but it also invites them to co-create it and walk alongside with you. And what I found is when you can do that, you're empowering them, but there's a sense of ownership and accountability that it's hard for them to say no to their, the ideas that they're bringing forward. Yeah. And you know, what's one of the most frustrating things as a salesperson, right? Is the ghosting and the, you know, no refer- return phone calls and the no communicate. I mean, that's that's the most frustrating thing in sales, right? And what we found over and mm-hmm. over is that when you can be perceived and valued as that guide, that to a large degree goes away. When you're looked at and perceived mm-hmm. as a salesperson, people believe that it's okay to ghost you. It's okay not to call back. It's okay to, right? It's a different, it's a different mm-hmm. relationship. And so- Mm-hmm. Again, even if you just take the relationship and I know I'm going to be talking to you and I'm going to be your guide and I'm just going to take that consultative relationship, overall, you're going to find that the communication, the willingness to have the ongoing communications, the number of times I'm ghosted or just is going to drop. And it just makes my job a lot easier mm-hmm. and a lot more fun, honestly, you know. Well, it allows you to do your job because when you're ghosted, you can't do your job. But because, Tom, you're helping them and they see that. And so when you're just trying to jump to that PO, which most do, but when you can pause for a moment and say, hang on a minute, I I think what I'm hearing is that, you know, like you said, this, this package or this paper, or this might be helpful in the stage you're at. I'll, I'll circle back with you in, you know, three or four days. And, you know, what we found is if you engage your IT team in this, it might be more helpful to give them eyes on something like that that shows that's a value and they haven't asked for anything. Oh my God, they're actually trying to help me. And it's so different than just this real pushy next step. And you, you know, you smell that they're just trying to close you. Yeah. And and think about it. And most, you know, larger B2B sales, there's obviously multiple stakeholders. There's multiple people involved. So if you're talking to, you know, you can call them the champion or the person you're dealing with, they have to go sell within their organization. So Mm -hmm. go, you know, go enable them to be the hero, be the ability to go sell through the organization. And then again, you're going to be that guide that's going to, you know, ultimately make them look good and and get the result that they're looking for. So when we talk about guiding them and helping them and enabling them and empowering them, there's a shift now in terms of them. And by, in in your book, you mentioned uh, Forrester states in 2025, 50, over 50% of of, uh, decision makers are going to be millennials. So talk to us, Tom, about what you're seeing in terms of the difference or the nuances in empowering and enabling millennials. Yeah. So millennials and younger buyers are way less tolerant of that old school way we were talking about earlier of, you know, sales and, you know, hey, calling and harassing and, 
um, and you know everything we don't like about the whole sales experience, right? That we just talked about earlier. And millennials will will and younger buyers just are not tolerant of that. So if they start working with a company and they're starting to feel that sort of again old school way of sales, they're going to move on. You know, and, and you've what you've done is create. I call it you've created a toxic relationship with somebody in a company and you have no chance really going forward. You know, how many times have you gone to a website, right? And you download a gated white paper or something. And then all of a sudden you've got 10 text messages and eight emails and five phone <laughs> calls from an SDR, right? More the tolerance for that is becoming less and less all the time to the point that's like, wait a minute, if I'm getting that experience now, this is not a company that I want to continue to have mm -hmm. an experience with going forward. And, and I think the reason that millennials are less tolerant is they're, they have higher expectations of that experience. Um, whereas maybe older buyers, because we've lived through the other old school way, we're more tolerant of the older school experience and we'll, in some cases, put up with it. But again, the younger buyer is like, I don't need to have this experience. And if someone's, you know, not going to be professional and courteous enough to give me a good buyer experience, then screw it. I'm going to go find somebody who does. And I think that's the real risk that we have. Um, and also, even if you have a company, you know, a lot of companies make a good chunk of their money selling, you know, recurring, you know, recurring product sales, right? They sell to their existing customers over and over. I think you have a real risk of losing customers if you're not providing a good experience to them as well. So it's not just in the pre-sale, but it's even afterwards as you try and build the ongoing relationship with a. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always say, you know, my, my goal is to really help elevate the profession of sales because I do see it as a profession. And, and you know, the, the only thing I'll say about this is maybe this will help accelerate the change we're trying to get and force the lazy reps and those who are phoning it in and, and not adapting. And even the sales managers who are still taking this legacy approach to say, hang on a minute, our conversion rates are in the toilet. You know, we're not getting, uh, we're not advancing. Maybe it's time we shift. So maybe instead of um, the in, the behavior change coming from them, hey, the millennials are driving the car here. We need to adjust. So either way, there's going to be a change. And you you amplify that by you know the economic conditions. It's the old way is just mm -hmm. too expensive, right? It costs too much when you've got you know BDR, you know just this sort of harassing sort of process. It's too expensive. And for companies, so companies have to be able to do more with less and they have to get more out of their team. And yeah, I mean, a lot of the companies that I talk to that are, you know, I'm getting from the revenue zone is exactly what you just said is like, what we're doing now is not working. We have got to do something different, you know, especially going into the new year, we have got to do something very different. What should we be doing different? And, you know, obviously that's a big part of what, what, what I lay out in the book. I see another stat here. 41% of millennials prefer not to work with a B2B sales rep. Is that a millennial sales rep? Or like, I'm not a millennial. I'm, I'm out by a few years. <laughs> so is that saying they prefer not, they would rather work with millennials, other millennials? No, what that stat is, is it saying that, is that because of the bad experience, most of them would just say, just let me do it myself, right? Let me go through the whole process myself. Yeah. And then when I'm ready to buy, go to a website and I'll buy, or I'll, you know, give me an easy way to make the purchase. Um, I don't think that's the best model though. I think that's happened no. because again of the, the, I don't want to go through a bad experience. I think if you start to provide better experiences, the willingness to engage in a conversation, engage mm -hmm. with a company, engage through the sales process improves because it's a value add, it's not a pain in the butt, basically. So mm -hmm. it's all yeah. about the experience. And, um, but yeah, I think because of we've been providing bad experiences, you know, and, and, and combined with technology, millennials are like, okay, well, just let me do it myself. And, but unfortunately yeah. that gets them into problems because as we talked about earlier, they can get overwhelmed, they can go down a lot of different paths mm -hmm. and it can lead to a lot of other you know, it's not necessarily the ideal outcome for either side. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's like a pendulum. You have to find that middle ground or that sweet spot where they're not doing it all on their own. You haven't completely pissed them off, but you're in the middle adding value. And what I think about is, you know, millennials, all they know is tech and it's instant gratification. And I, I, one example that just is coming to me is when I was growing up, I had to wait for a TV program to come on. So if it was on at seven o'clock on a Monday, I had to be there. <laughs> I'd go get a snack on commercial breaks or go to the washroom. And now even my kids, it's like instant. I don't want to watch this. I don't want to. And so they have zero attention spam and, and their tolerance. Even my kids, they, they can't watch long movies anymore because they're just like, boom, boom, boom. So I can see where it's coming from that. It's like I hear noise and eh, the noise isn't adding next, next, next. Yeah. Yeah. I want what I want now. Right. And yeah. But I do think on the again, on the other side, I do believe whether you're millennials or otherwise we're looking for good guidance. We're looking for good help. Mm-hmm. We're looking, we want to be successful in what we're doing. Um, so therefore let's facilitate that rather than trying to throw a hand grenade into that and put them into our process so that we can, you know, put them on our forecast and, and follow our process, which as we've talked about is probably not going to be a winning scenario. So what does good guidance look like? There's people listening now and they're like, okay, I want to be this, whether I'm a millennial or not. I don't want to get pushed off. I don't want to, you know, frustrate them. But what is, what are some things they can do that provide good guidance for their buyers? Well, and this is what I talk a lot about in the book, right? Is, is you have to understand the journey that your buyer is generally going to want to go down. And when I say the journey, what is it that they need to understand and what is it that they need to believe to get to the point where they would be at a place where they're willing to buy your product or service, whatever the case may be. That's what I call the revenue zone, right? Is And so then, okay, what is, whether it's content, whether it's guidance, whether it's having an influencer, I, whatever the right or reference, whatever the case may be, what is that, what I call the yellow brick road, which is what is the road that you would like that buyer or that prospect to go down, knowing that if they follow that road, they have, that has the highest probability of one, giving them a great experience and two, ending up in a place where they have that demand and that trust and they're willing to do business with you. And so you have to engineer to a degree what that yellow brick road is for your prospect or, or your customer. And then you have to make sure that the organization understands that yellow brick road. Now, is that yellow brick road perfect? Not everybody follows everything to the exact letter, but you'll find as you look at prospects, you're going to find trends and you're going to see the ones that you've had success with followed at some level, some level of this road. So the more Mm -hmm. and over time, you're going to get more and more data and more and more understanding of that yellow brick road. So Mm -hmm. understand that as a business understand that then and make sure your sales team and everybody else, your marketing team understands that and then provide the materials and provide the information. And I I go into a lot of detail on how to do this in the book and there's tools and worksheets and all that, but basically lay this out and then incorporate that into everything that you're doing. And you'll find that your customers and prospects are going to be like, wow, this is a different experience and this is a valuable experience. And you're, and you're guiding me. And then, it, it, like I said, it's not going to be perfect day one, but you keep iterating and you keep improving and you keep learning and it gets better and better over time. Mm-hmm. That's great. And a, a few things that stood out to me there, Tom, is it's in, definitely an iterative process, but with all the data you're collecting, it becomes predictable and you can start, you know, repeating it because you see the patterns. Um, and another thing I said is, uh, uh, what you said is I like the holistic approach is that, you know, it's not just for sales, it's for marketing, it's for operating, it's everyone to see how the various systems work together. And that's a problem. That's how you stick in silos and go, well, I'm just talking to sales folks like, well, this actually spills over into marketing as well and maybe customer success. So it's like, you know, you're driving business outcomes versus just selling. And we have, you know, I have customers or, or people that have read the revenue zone book, follow the revenue zone process and completely redid their website. And because their website was not facilitating the journey and Mm -hmm. even helping them on the website, I talk about this in the book is, you know, you go to somewhere on your homepage or whatever. Well, if you know that there's a logical next step that you should have somebody go do, maybe they watch a video on the homepage and then there's a, then say, Hey, 
why don't you check out this video or why don't you, you know, do what you can to guide them. Don't yeah. make them go yeah. bounce all over the website to find what it is that they're, they're yeah. trying to do. So you, you, there's a lot of, once you understand your yellow brick road and you understand that road that leads to that revenue zone, you can incorporate that into really all aspects of, of your, of again, all the customer experience and your website is certainly a big part of, of your buyer experience. So. And I would say most websites are seller focused. And when you can just flip the lens for a moment and go, how is my buyers interacting here? And like you said, a lot of times we think that the dots are connected for them. And I'm like, no, 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 you need to tell them to click here to watch this. Like they, they're not sophisticated buyers. I get that they need to be empowered, but you still need to nudge them a little bit and, you know, tee up a little bit of where you, it might make more sense to go after they've just watched something or they just read something. Well, and, and look at web, I mean, a lot of websites have, and companies have done a great job of building resource centers and blogs and all of this great data that's somewhere mm -hmm. on their website. And then you have to go sort it out and kind of find it. And well, is this relevant or what is that? Make it easy. Right. And then, you know, mm -hmm. okay. And again, not everyone's going to follow it, but a lot of people will value that guidance and direction and make it, you know, so that you can get things at the right time, ideally in the right place. And I think there's a lot of, you know, you hear a lot about personalization of websites and there's a lot of that that's going to happen over time and continue to get more sophisticated. And that's great. Use that as a way to, again, help facilitate that buyer journey every way that you, you can. And trust me, your prospect will see it and appreciate it when they start to see a different experience. In the mm -hmm. same way, I, when they see a bad experience, they know yeah. it and run for cover. Totally. And when you say they see it, I would say they feel it because, you know, think about when you're... Feel it is well, better. Yeah, it's probably better. Yeah. Well, we buy an emotion, right? But I just think I'm thinking about my own experience and it's like a puzzle. And I'm just like, I need two pieces to make this decision and nobody can help me see around the corner. You send me a piece of content. I'm like, oh my God, there's one of the pieces. I needed that. So that shows me you're trying to help. You are meeting me at the right time. You didn't, if you, if you gave me that earlier, I didn't even know I needed to do a puzzle. And if you gave it to me late, I would have been on to the next person. So the timing is so important and that's what value is. It really is versus just going, read this. It's like, it's five pages, like point me in the direction. So just what you said that, that they will feel that and it will absolutely make for a different experience. Yes. And you start building trust, right? And now, now you're, you're building a relationship and you're not maybe as apt to ghost somebody, or if you do reach out, Hey, how did, how was that white paper or whatever you gave me? Yeah. There's a better chance of you getting a response and building and continuing that, that conversation. So that's better than just touching base and checking in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just checking in. <laughs> that will yield. A, yeah. Just checking in. Cause uh, that's all about you. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, and you're right, that will totally start building trust. And I want to start, I want to shift gears now and talk. And for those who are watching this, we're going to, we're going to show, I'm going to show here a graphic from the book. And I think this is a really great visual. And so Tom, if you want to walk us through, I'll just kind of set up the, the X axes and the, the Y axes. And what I love about this, if you can explain the X and Y, but then in the middle, uh, when we have the anonymous zone, the engagement, and we, you've mentioned revenue zone a few times, but Let's start by defining the X and the Y axes and how you came up with those. Well, I, I, let's start actually with the little revenue zone circle in the upper right, right? Because that's where we're trying to get a buyer is to the point where they have demand for our product or service and they have, or, and they have a reasonable level of trust with ourselves and our business. So that's what we're trying to get somebody. This is true no matter what, right? That's how you get buyers mm -hmm. that buy. Um, so, but there's, those are not, those are different things. You know, building trust is not the same as building demand. Like you'll see, I, I talk to salespeople a lot and they're like, oh, I've built a really good relationship and they really like me. Okay. But have you created demand for your product? <laughs> well, no, but I took them to dinner and, you know, it's like, there's a lot of stuff that, that we do as salespeople that I think build maybe like and move towards the trust, but then we forget about the demand part. Or we try and go the other direction on the x-axis and we just go all about demand, which is what's happened, I think, a lot in the tech industry and all of that with, you know, the whole BDR and the whole process that you see a lot here is like, well, just, you know, I'm going to get you to demand as fast as I possibly can. So you have to look at both. So the x-axis is really about 
How do you create demand for your product, service, the category that you're in, like we talked about before, which goes from awareness, interest to demand, and then the Y, um, sorry, the Y axis. And then the X axis is at the same time, how are you using that to build that know, like, and trust? And if you can put those two together where you've created demand and build trust, then you have somebody in that upper right corner, which is the, the revenue zone. So that's the, mm-hmm. that's the basic philosophy. The, the barriers or the things that make that a little more difficult is, and we'll talk about it here, is the what's in between lies between there, which is the fact that people want to be anonymous and, and do a lot of this on their own. So that's where some of the challenge comes in, but that's the basic premise. I love that because most people, I would say, tackle this on their own. They're looking, just as you mentioned, the know, like, and trust. And it's like, that's great. And I'm, we, we talked before we hit record, and I, I remember early in my career, I was, you know, increasing probability of clothes. I'm like, this is really good. I feel good. They're nice people. Like, I'd like to do business. It was complete subjective and hope, right? But there was zero demand. Like, that's my feeling. And like you said, if it's all demand and I'm pushing it, but they don't trust me, they don't like me, I haven't helped them, I haven't shown them, I haven't created an experience, helped them see what solutions and what's around the corner that I can that it's, that it's I can help them achieve and what it's like to work with me, they're not going to do that because I've commoditized myself. They can get that, they can get that with anybody. Why is it going to be me? So I love that you have these two aligned because I think if, you know, you think about people listening and they're like, well, how can I implement this within my territory, my business? You know, you know, when you're in that known awareness phase, okay, what, what, are, what am I experiencing? What, what are the, the, the behavior of the buyers? How do I know when I've started, they start liking me, we're starting to get traction to interest. And I think once we can, and the yellow brick road will help them do that, but you start labeling the language, what their verifiers are to go, okay, and now we're getting here it's easier to repeat. Yeah. And I talk about this in the book. I believe that this is, this is the replacement for the traditional sales funnel, right? So Mm -hmm. the traditional sales funnel was all about me. You know, I go through, I help the buyer go here and then they go here and then they go here. This is the, I don't even like to call it a funnel because it's not really a funnel, but it's, it's the buyer. This is how you're enabling the buyer to get to that point that you were using with a sales funnel, which is to get people to a place and prospects to a place where they're ready to do business with you. So this is, in my opinion, hand grenade your sales funnel or your old school sales funnel and look at how you're driving your process and enabling your buyer with what we just talked about, which is how are you creating demand and how are you creating trust or building trust? And then how do you do that in a methodical way that guides them and enables them as best as you possibly can to that revenue zone? Very different mindset than a traditional sales funnel that you would, you know, see on a forecast or or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's great. I think if uh, sales leaders are using the legacy approach and you know linear and old language, and and the buyers, you know, even since the pandemic, they don't buy the same. And so I think it's incumbent upon us just to have a conversation with our buyer and, and understand everyone's digital first. What's changed? What, what, what is helpful for us now when we used to run these reports? Oh, you don't use them anymore. Okay. Well, we're still running them. What would you find helpful now? And so these conversations have to be had. And the good news is, is, as we said in the beginning, right? Just think about how you would want to buy if yeah. you were, how you do want to buy, or if you were buying your product or working with your company, what experience would you want? And if mm-hmm. you start looking at it through that lens, that by itself, well, and you may not like what you see, but it starts to move you in that direction where you can make the switch. But, you know, easier said than done, because when you say it like that, Tom, it's like, God, just hold the mirror up, folks. It's so obvious. But why do you think, in your opinion, that people like you, you know, when you've and I, I remember once I actually got kicked out of an office once <laughs> I came back from sales training. Oh, my God, like maybe 18 years ago. And everyone in my class was crushing it with this one product. And I went into and Anisha's office, and I really hard sold her. And it was, if so, wasn't me, but I just come off training and everyone else was closing it. And I remember just going like, that felt so gross. Like, why did you do that? So it's like, at a certain point, that awareness button should go off and go, Karen, that's like, you were way too pushy there, you know? And, and so I, I think that reflect, that reflective period is missing. The, oh, they didn't have budget or they chose someone else and their product's cheaper. Hang on a minute. What role did I actually play in this, in this not going in our favor? Yeah. And, and, you know, people, and I, I hear this too, is like salespeople are 
sometimes still effective with that sort of pressure, high pressure approach. And maybe they even get a deal that way. But the problem is, is that because customers have so many options, most company customers may buy something, but then they're already thinking right after that, how am I going to change or get out of this down the road? It's yeah. not building a healthy relationship. And if you really not, not only look at, hey, did I get a sale, but am I doing the, am I putting a foundation in place to build a good long-term mm -hmm. relationship that's going to result in a good lifetime value of this customer? And mm -hmm. that's another thing that, you know, it's so easy to switch too, right? It's so easy to switch. Yeah. To, you know, if you had a bad experience and maybe you got pressured into something or you successfully pressured somebody to do something, but you didn't really have them in that revenue zone, which has got mm -hmm. trust in there, then you've already got a fragile relationship before you've even got started. And, you know, it's, it's, you're at risk right out of the gate. You know, two things, I, two words that come to mind there is one is integrity. And I just think that is, that's just always been in my moral compass as a person, never mind as a salesperson. That's number one. And number two is culture. When I hear stuff like that, that's the culture. That's that like uh, Wolf of Wall Street culture, like get it, you know, close everything, do everything. And it's like, do you actually feel good when you close that knowing you just sold your soul to the devil? Like, like, no, like what, at what point do you say, I can't, this is a round hole. I'm, I'm selling a square peg. <laughs> Sorry, I can't help you out. Yeah. Or, or even, you know, I mean, as this is, we've, I've, I've, we've done this in our, my software company is we've created demand, but, and they were, you know, quote unquote, ready to buy, but we didn't feel like we had built enough trust yet. And we actually yeah. slowed down the cycle a bit because we mm -hmm. knew if we didn't do this well, it will come boomerang back and our customer success team will end up paying for it or we'll have a churn or we'll have a, you know, so it's, again, it's very different, but the, the ongoing result has much, much longer term benefits than, you know, Hey, how quickly did I, you know, close a deal? Yeah. Big time. Um, and Tom, in your three rules of revenue, the second one is make it easy for your prospect to remain anonymous as long as they desire while doing the research and due diligence. So talk to us now about the three zones that are in between the X and the Y axis that they have to cross in order to get to the revenue zone. Right. So, you know, let's, let's face it, right. We all want to do our own research um, anonymously and we want to, you know, and th that's why we were talking about earlier is making it even on the website or whatever, make it easy for that person who is doing their research anonymously to ideally get the data they need and then the right sequence. Not easy, not saying that it's easy, but it's something that we need to deal with. So every or 99.9% .9 of prospects are going to spend some time in what I call the anonymous zone researching either your product or your product category and researching your company or the industry that you're in and they don't wanna be bothered. Right? They don't want to be um, harassed by a salesperson in that period of time. Then at some point, and this is not always true with all B2B, tons your product and so forth, but generally in, in B2B sales, if they have gone through and done, a, and, and done that research and come out of it, at some point they do need to get information and want to have conversations with a qualified salesperson or a guide as we talked about earlier. But what I found is, or we found, is that a lot of times it's validating what they learned in the anonymous zone. So they've done their research. Now they reach out to somebody and go, hey, you know, this is what I'm seeing. I have some questions here. Is this really true? You know, can I talk to, you know, they're doing some to help facilitate that research. It's not a matter of now I need somebody to go sell me. I need somebody to help me along with my research. So they kind of pop their head out of the anonymous zone and end up in that engagement zone. Again, a common mistake that we see a lot is that a prospect comes into the engagement zone and the salesperson thinks it's a sale and it's immediately on the forecast, right? <laughs> no, what you've done is you've done successfully had a customer that you've nurtured to the point that's willing to have engagement with you and you can start using that to build the relationship and then help further and create that demand. So, but again, not every B2B sale will have an engagement zone. Some engagement zones may need to happen earlier. Some will happen later. So it'll vary based on your company, but generally anonymous. Then there's some level I want to engage. And then at some point that helps me get into the revenue zone. So 
that's the way the, the those three boxes are those those two boxes are set up there. Mm-hmm. And I love the way you you pointed out and labeled the anonymous zone because I think anybody who's in sales has also been a buyer at some point and. I've been there too. And sometimes there's a, there's a paper and I want to download it. And I just know like pretty much someone's going to be knocking at my door in three minutes (laughs) trying to sell me. And so it's like, is it worth it? Like is, is the juice worth the squeeze here? Cause I don't want to put up with somebody. And so I just think knowing that this is what it's called, that this is what they're going to be looking for, kind of not bother them. So it's almost like set up your backend systems in a way, like what you talked about, get your website, tee things up that allow them to follow the journey without you because they don't want you at this point. And if you can nurture them correctly, offering the right value, knowing the way that they make a decision and what steps they follow, when it comes to engagement time, you can actually help them. And and most likely they will want to receive your help. But the thing is, you will have lost all that time if you go in and pitch them. Because like you said, they're just looking to validate. They have a few questions. And so th- this is good. Like they're prime. They're coming to you. And you could quash that in a moment if not handled correctly. Absolutely. So, yes, you can take them backwards or out of the whole revenue zone matrix with the wrong type of engagement as you have there. And not to get really geeky, but you know, people look at, you know, their website a lot through Google analytics and all of that. And this is really where you can use Google analytics as a way to start to see, are your website visitors moving through that journey in a way, are you facilitating that journey as they navigate through the website along that yellow brick road? So you can start to see, you know, okay, if I'm guiding them, are people following that road and are they moving through that road? And are they spending time on these things? You may not know who they are, but you can see Mm -hmm. that your yellow brick road is actually working through things like Google Analytics and stuff like that. So anyway, not to get into the geek stuff and the tech stuff, but there's still ways Mm -hmm. of knowing, are you, you know, are you making the headway and are you enabling that buyer the way that you want them to do, even though they're in the anonymous zone? I think that's huge. And that's where that iterations come from, because basically it's like, are they taking the bait? And I don't like saying that because it sounds manipulative, but if this is the way in which we've designed it, are they following it? Because a lot of times the way in which I perceive something is perceived differently by someone else. So that's where it's important to validate, check it and go, okay, usually they're going from three to five. They're missing four. Why are they missing four? Maybe we need to put a call to action there. And so I think it's very important. And you'll start to see that. You'll start to see that. Yeah, absolutely. But but then the blueprint or the yellow book wrote is is your guy is your blueprint that guides you to go okay let's make a shift here and then this is PDCA like plan do check act right in in lean and then you you update it on your yellow book wrote you update the website and then hopefully you see the behaviors change and you again make sure your playbooks when you when you do have engagement that those playbooks are providing and have the right content and the right information available for the sales teams or whatever to provide to them so that when mm-hmm. they do reach out rather than going and trying to, you know, take them back in their journey. Yeah. Realize that, okay, it's likely that they're going to want this information or they're going to want a reference or a case study or, or validate some, or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. You can start to know that and you'll see it over and over and you'll see that trend and that continues to help enable your team as well as the buyer. Okay, so now we're in the engagement zone. We've let them do their stuff. We've kept them alone. Uh, we've engaged them. We've validated. We've answered some questions. We're grooming them a little bit. How do we now move from engagement to the revenue zone? Yeah, I think that's a bit of, you know, that's where you're looking and saying, okay, have I created demand, right? Have we created demand for our product or service? And have we built that level of trust? And most often it's going to happen organically because the prospect's going to go, I want a proposal, right? I, they're going to tell you I want to buy. It will happen most on it, you know, most of the time organically. One thing I point out though is that when you're in the revenue zone, and, and it's maybe in some cases can be one of the most fragile areas, is you know they may be ready to buy, but you still have to get them over that hump and get a signed contract or whatever it is that you're doing and get payment or whatever your buying process, your, your actually transaction process is at that point. So, you know, again. You're constantly looking to see, okay, have I created that demand? Is there any other issues that are going to get in the way? Is there an impending event that's going to 
you know, cause that contract to be signed or that agreement to be signed at that point. But the process of getting there, them there will more or less happen organically. It's not like you have to drag them in there. They will, mm -hmm. it'll happen organically based upon them going through that, that yellow brick road and that engagement process. Absolutely. And, um, I think a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble closing. And I'm like, if you followed it, like for you, the demand and the trust, if you got them out on the outer extremes there, <laughs> they're asking you, <laughs> you don't need to close them. They, you've done your job. They're going to say, Tom, where do I sign? When, whenever I hear somebody tell me I'm having a hard time closing, I just say that because you're trying to close people that aren't ready to buy. That's, Absolutely. that's, if you're, if you have people that are ready to buy, you will close all day long. And that's really what your job mm -hmm. is here is to get people that are in that revenue zone and they will, you know, a large percentage of them will close. And when you mentioned Tom, some of the, I guess, nuances around, you know, payment and transactional uh, stuff that takes place in the revenue zone. What are your suggestions there? Are you, now that you start seeing, okay, this is where we get a bit of friction. Things start slowing down. They have questions here. What's your recommendations to get in front of that? So we don't start eroding all the groundwork we've done to get them into that revenue zone. Oh boy. That's, that's really, um, that's really dependent upon the company, but I can give a couple of examples, right? Again, going back to experience, and, you know, how many times have you gotten to the point where somebody says, hey, send me a proposal or send me an agreement. And then you get this agreement and either you've got terms in there that don't really align with what you talked about. There's surprises in there. You've got some like legalese that, it, you know, requires basically you have to send it to your you, you start to make the transaction difficult and the transaction mm -hmm. experience doesn't align with everything you did to get them to that point. So. What I, you know, tell is, is, and again, every company is different. Obviously agreements are different and, you know, I'm not saying it's a one size fits all, but don't stop with the, looking at the experience just when you get to the point of saying, oh, I sent them a proposal or a contract. How easy are you making it for that transaction to occur? How are you making it onerous? Are you requiring them to send it to their law firm for three weeks or four weeks to figure out all your terms and conditions? You know, do you have risk reversal built into it so that they aren't like, you know, whatever the case may be, make that final transaction part of the experience. And again, as frictionless as you possibly can. Even I'm wondering the yellow brick road, do you have a component where you could do something like that in the agreement to really say like, how can we lean this out and think about, you know, yourself when you get caught up on these T's and C's, you know, you have to pass into the legal, like just even say like when you get to eight, nine and 10, this is what we're looking for. Here's a quick video to show, like just spell it out and make it easy for them so that you're not adding friction to, you know, an enjoyable up until this point experience. Well, well you brought up a great point. I, and our company, when we do a proposal, we most often send it with a video, like a little loom video mm -hmm. or whatever or we do it live with them, but a video is even better because then the video can circulate. So, because yeah. a lot of times a contract may need to go to legal or accounting or finance or whatever, it can circulate with that. And then that way, the any questions or any sort of things are all addressed right there. And again, we're eliminating the friction and we're showing the customer that we really care, right? We care about that mm -hmm. experience and and we care about making this transactional process as frictionless as possible. Mm-hmm. And, and they also see Tom as a person versus the other guy who sent a PDF. <laughs> There's no yeah. face behind it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a differentiator as well. Um, well, you've presented so much value here in the revenue zone and really shifting our mindset from, you know, the language we hide behind is we are buyer centric. And then we open up our PowerPoint and it's our logo, our company, our slides. And your customer just says that you can see their eyes roll back and they think, I thought for a moment this is going to be different, but unfortunately you're the same as everyone else. So you really have shown us that, you know, to be customer centric, you know, we have the two axes. We really want to focus on, you know, them knowing, liking, and trusting us, but at the same time overlaying that with moving them from that awareness, interest to demand um, stage. And then the, the areas we have to overcome is really allowing them to rest initially in that anonymous zone until um, they move out, hopefully on their own to the engagement where we can nurture them, validate them, and then ultimately to the revenue zone. And all this is facilitated by um, the Yellow Brick Road, which is the iterative document that you can really ensure that there is alignment, they're moving and basically, you know, 
you're helping them buy and feel comfortable making that decision. Well said. I could have well stated. And, you know, the yellow brick <laughs> road too, um, I don't know if you got a chance to look at the worksheet, but part of in the book, I have a worksheet that you can download or it's a Google sheet that you can use to actually build that your yellow brick road because, and, and come mm -hmm. up with it and go through it. And it's, we're finding it's a really valuable tool again, for people to iterate as a team, as they get their team together and kind of work through that yellow brick road for their business and how it's going to come together. So there's a lot of sort of hands-on stuff in the book that related to some of the, you know, conceptual stuff that we talked about today. Yeah, I did have a chance to look at that. And I would highly recommend the book because it does, as Tom mentioned, come with some uh, frameworks and some downloadable documents. But I think as sales leaders, you know, it's a great way to task your team to say, hey, guys, let's go into our website. Uh, let's go to the about me. Let's go to the product. Does it really is it helpful? Because they're closest to the customer, right? And so if you look and you, you know, you're thinking you're this and then you're like, this language is so 1983. It doesn't represent anything. And so how can you then invite your team and empower your team to make these changes. And I think what it does is that it forces them to go ask the questions and really get granular as to how do their buyers buy so they can come back, meet them where they're at. So it helps the website, but it also prepares them to have these conversations so that they're, they're immersed in the buyer's environment and the buyer feels that they're like, Oh, Tom, you really get the window industry. You really get the CPG. Meanwhile, it's because you're updating your website, you're really doing homework on them, but they feel it. And you're not just selling something with having no understanding of how this product is going to be merged and, and implemented into your environment. Completely. And again, it's not something that happens overnight. It's iterative and you continue mm -hmm. to get better and better at it. But as I tell people, right, start now. And even if you're doing it 20%, you have a big competitive advantage mm -hmm. over everybody else who's not. And, you know, maybe yeah. you get to 50% and 80, you know, over the next, you know, periods of months, but start now and you're going to have a big competitive advantage because we talk a lot, as you said, about buyer centric, but we're not buyer experience centric. And that's, you know, where we yeah. have an opportunity to be really a, a big competitive advantage. Well, I think, you know, think of timing and we're starting a brand new year. Like what a great opportunity for sales leaders to say like the funnel is, you know, let's, let's, let's change approach the way we did it before. It still was iterative. So we're not saying, you know, on Wednesday, this is going to be completely different, but it's still, it's a, an iterative approach, but it's a different approach. And it's the way in which our buyers are buying. And again, we know now that half of them are millennials. So where, and, and you know, growing every day, they, you and might growing not, every day. Yeah. yeah and, and you, you know, you don't have the second chance anymore, like, because they don't have the tolerance to hang around for someone who's not adding value. And, and just the one last thing on the millennial, you know, we do a lot of work with my software company with manufacturers and distributors and companies that have existed for, in some cases, over 100 years, right? So they're longstanding businesses, you know, they've lived through all the different sort of generations, and they're feeling the same issue. Their buyers are now millennials. The people they're hiring are now millennials. They want to do things differently. They, they're really realizing they have to adapt. And so I don't think there's mm -hmm. any industry that's immune to this. It's, it's coming, it's happening. And so, you know, every industry is going to have to really adapt to this new world or, you know, lose a big competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. I see it in my own business. I see, you know, people that are making a decision half my age and I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Back it up a little bit. I mean, it's, I, I think in, in everything we talked about, the first stage is awareness, right? Because before we can make change. And so it's awareness of ourselves, of awareness of our, of our process, of our website, uh, of, you know, buyers being, being aware that buyers like to be anonymous. Like I like to be anonymous in all these things. So I think just being aware and mindful that these things are going on allows us not to just jump, jump on them and react. It's like, hang on a minute. Let me just, let me just sit on this for a moment and think, what is the best way um, that's going to help move this forward? That still, you know, is going to help build trust and demand. Like, I, I think people are just so quick to hit the, the button to move forward. And it's like, you just miss so many steps and so many, you can't, you can't go backwards once you've shown your card too. No, no. So unfortunately there's not a lot of shortcuts, but again, if you do it right, you can have a, mm -hmm a big advantage and you're going to find your costs, your marketing costs are going to drop. 
your cost of sales are going to drop, your, which is going to increase your profitability. I mean, everything that really matters now more than ever is, you know, there's just a lot, a lot of benefit by kind of taking a different approach here. So, yeah. Did you write this knowing the recession's going to kick in? <laughs> no. Well, you know, I, I mean, it, you know, there's always been, the book was published in May and there's always, you know, certainly we were already into a bit of the, a change in, in the May timeframe, yeah. but you know, no, but I, I didn't know that it was, we were going to see quite the scrutiny that's, you know, happened related to, you know, how people are spending money and marketing costs and all of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to just get, continue to be scrutinized over the next, you know, few years, probably no, no time like now to, to change. Yeah. Well, listen, Tom, if people are interested in, um, learning more about you all, I'll include the link to the, the book. Um, but if they want to learn more about you, connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best for me personally. I'm T Burton 5350 on LinkedIn is the, is the URL for that. So please, um, reach out, uh, love to connect. The book is, as you can go to the revenuezone.com or it's also on Amazon, either of those places are fine. And, um, yeah, love to, love to, you know, I love to hear feedback. It's funny because as you know, or you may not know when you, when somebody buys something from Amazon, I have no idea if somebody buys the book. Right. And we've done, as you'll see, when you go to the website, we're, we're not putting, you know, you don't have to enter your email in to download the worksheets and all of that stuff. So a lot of times we don't know who's buying the book and who's going through the process. And then all of a sudden I'll get an email and, you know, they're, Hey, I got this yellow brick road. Can you, you know, it's like, it's really kind of interesting to, to watch this in, in real life. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, the resources are there and, and, but please reach out to me if you have questions or you're reading the book and love to hear your feedback and if you like it and what we could change and, you know, how you, any, any of that, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very open to that. That's great. Well, thank you so much. And thank you again for your time and sharing all your insights. I know that um, they're easy to implement and that they will be a game changer. Absolutely. They will be. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Karen, for having me. It was, it was fun. My pleasure. And thanks for tuning in, everyone. And we'll see you next time.